Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hmm? Ah! Hey everybody, welcome back to Game of Microphones! This is Jason, this is Game of Microphones, episode 28. A little bit of a preseason bonus for you. I know people have been gearing up for Game of Thrones Season 7. It'll be here in a couple of weeks here. I'm totally excited to get back into it. And it just so happens that uh, last year at the end of Season 6, Duncan recorded a Mondo Jumbo (laughs) Still Smug Book Talk segments. And I just never got around to editing that and publishing it. But actually, now is really the perfect time because it's so in-depth. And he puts so much care into it. It's just illuminates so many different things. It goes scene by scene, moment by moment, uh, over the finale of season six. And talks about how that relates to the book. He's got ruminations and predictions based on knowledge from the books and from other sources and even some readings of some of the texts like he does sometimes. So the reason why that's so cool, at least it was for me right now, because I just listened to it earlier today, is that it helps get back into the swing of things for season seven. It reminds you of a lot of the things that were going on at the end of uh, the show last season and just, you know, kind of gets you back up to date with things. Uh, It also shows you some things that you probably hadn't thought of before. So if you really want to go deep with this stuff, this is a good episode for you. If, on the other hand, you haven't read the books and you really don't want to be spoiled by anything about anything in the books or, you know, about what that might mean for the future of the show, because there are some things that happened in the books that might point to some things that that will happen in the show, then you probably should not listen to this episode if you're one of those kinds of people. Everybody else, I think you're going to really like it. So before I hand it over to Duncan, I want to mention that we're hoping to do some 
ads this season to help pay for the cost of doing the podcast. One way that we can do that is we there's this uh, demographic survey that I would love it if you guys would go online and fill it out. It just takes a couple minutes, basically multiple choice questions, and um, it would really, really help us. Uh, we actually have to have a bunch of answers from you guys to be able to, to uh, do ads. So the URL for that is survey.libsyn.com slash game of microphones. That's survey.libsyn dot com slash game of microphones that url is also in the show notes so you can just go into your podcast app and tap to find the show notes and it'll be in there if you could go fill that out it'd be totally cool i will share the results on our facebook page if you want so you can see you know what other kinds of people listen to this podcast but enough about that here's duncan Crispy Sparrows and Suicidal Kings, and welcome back to another Still Smug Book Talk bonus episode of the Game of Microphones podcast. Today we'll be covering the Game of Thrones Season 6 finale, The Winds of Winter. I'm your host, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, Lord of Castle Sterling, Leal Sword of the White Wolf, and Bearer of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Dark Warrior. And what a fantastic finale we were given. Although I can't be the only one slightly disappointed that we got The Winds of Winter on TV before book six of the same title was released. But never mind that, because we do have some meaty crossovers for this episode. And by meaty, of course, I'm referring to the Frey Pies, fed to Walder himself by our friend no one, Arya Stark, who apparently could still use alternate faces. We never saw her fully trained and given the capability to do that, but it seems that she has learned how to change faces at will. So it's very exciting that we're seeing her employing this outside of the House of Black and White and over closer to home in Westeros. So the Frey Pies were something that we weren't sure if we were going to get on the TV show just because situationally things are so much different right now in the show than they are in the books. But They did this very well, and possibly even more potently than in the books themselves. Um, I mean, you know, obviously the books are very potent, but in this case, Walder Frey himself gets to eat the pies, which is a departure from the books. In the books, Wyman Manderley has three Freys at White Harbor there to parlay for some reason or another, and uh, on their trip back to Winterfell with Wyman joining them, he claims that the phrase, you know, were fed up with the slow pace and that they decided to run ahead and went missing and never to be heard from again. They were probably killed by bandits or somebody on the road, maybe the Brotherhood Without Banners, who are going around hanging phrase, and it's known at this point. So they show up to Winterfell for Ramsay Bolton's wedding to fake Arya, and uh, Wyman, who's a giant fat fuck in the books brought these three massive, massive pies, which he's super excited about. He says, The best pie you have ever tasted, my lords. Wash it down with arbor gold and savor every bite. I know I shall. And he proceeds throughout the feast to just eat slice after slice after slice of this pie. You know, trying every pie, all three of them. And the pies are being passed around Winterfell through the Great Hall, and everybody's eating and feasting. And eventually, it, it's discovered that the three Freys 
Rhaegar, Simond, and Jared, who disappeared on the way from White Harbor to Winterfell, have been baked into the three huge meat pies. So everybody's eating Freys. All the Freys at Winterfell are eating their brothers and cousins, and <laughs> the, the Boltons are eating the Freys, their allies, and it's hilarious. It's just hilarious because these people are awful, and um, it's good to see them get a little bit of comeuppance in this this terrible world where they've perpetrated these awful crimes. It's pretty funny also, actually, at the wedding, Lord Wyman instructs Abel the Bard, who's Mance Raider, everybody knows, to sing the song about the rat cook for them. And the uh, the rat cook is is a legend from the Night Fort, where basically this um, this king came to visit the Night Fort, and the the cook killed the king's son, who is you know a guest at the Night Fort, and fed it to him in a pie. And so um, as punishment for this, for violating guest rights, specifically, the cook at the Night Fort was transformed into a rat, and basically he is damned to feed on his own young for eternity. So it's interesting that this is the song that that Wyman instructed Abel to play at the wedding and that this is how it plays out in the books and on the show because um, obviously Walder Frey's great crime is his violation of guest right at Rob Stark's wedding or at um, at Edmure Stark's wedding when he was Edmure Tully's wedding when he was going to be marrying the um, the Frey daughter so just like the Rat King, huh, Walder Frey is damned to eating his own young in the form of pies delivered by Arya in the in the TV show's case, which is great. Just awesome to see Walder Frey having the be- you know have, seeing someone get the better of Walder Frey for one time after all the the pain and suffering that we've seen as a result of his his just horrible actions and his devious and shady behavior. It was great to see him put in his place and it was awesome to see Arya reveal who she was and say, you know, I'm Arya Stark. I wanted you to know that because I wanted you to know that it's a Stark that's that the last thing you see before you die is a Stark smiling down at you. So I thought it was it was a great change to the um to the Frey Pie plot from the books instead of just having a bunch of Boltons and random Freys eating the Frey Pies, it was actually Walder Frey himself. We didn't get the whole background with Wyman Manderley and the three missing Freys on the road and all of that, but it's okay because we did actually get to see Wyman Manderley in this episode, and that is our next book crossover. So at Winterfell, after the Starks have taken back the castle, or the Stark and the Targaryen, it seems, John, have taken back the castle, we have a meeting of the great northern lords, including Houses Glover, Houses Manderley, Mormont, etc. And there's this great, it's it's great, um, Lady Mormont is just kicking ass and taking names, we get the another mention of her famous passage from the book, from her letter to Stannis, you know, House Mormont knows only one king and, um, whose name is Stark. And like I mentioned last time, that may be a reference to the Grand Northern Conspiracy in the in the books, where John has actually been legitimized by by Rob. So he is a Stark, and they, uh, the North is angling to make him their leader. On the show, that plotline seems to have been cut out. 
but this part here makes me think that it may still be happening in the book because she says her, her famous line again you know we know one king who's the king in the north whose name is Stark and she goes on to say that you know technically Jon Snow may not be a Stark by name but he's Ned Stark's son and I don't care if he's a bastard he's the one he's the only king that he's only he's my only king you know the only king that I recognize and it starts a great a great um chain reaction here which is very remindful of Rob Stark's crowning from season two and um the next person to stand up and you know proclaim Jon Snow as their king the king in the north is Wyman Manderley noticeably skinnier than uh, his portrayal in the books which is kind of funny but it was great to see him on the show because he's really a fan favorite character in the books people love um how he's plotting in secret to um to overthrow the boltons and fighting for the north while pretending to to um have pledged allegiance and fealty to the boltons at winterfell and um he tells them he killed Davos in the in the books, but he's really keeping Davos alive and feeding him information, informing him of his plans. And um, it's just great to see that character brought to life on the TV show. I hope that we get more of him, a lot more next year, and get to know um, how his character is in the TV show universe a little better, because we just really got a quick thing of it this time. But it was also great to see um, House Glover eat their words and you know, change their mind and decide to support House Stark again, and um, just seeing the, the North solidify as a cohesive unit again was fantastic. But also the fact that they're backing Jon Stark, or Jon Snow in this case, as the King in the North may signify that the the Grand Northern Conspiracy in the books is not quite as non-existent as in the TV show. Because, after all, in the books, the aim, the supposed aim of the Grand Northern Conspiracy is to raise Jon Stark to be the king in the north. So, the fact that they basically did this on the show without the whole conspiracy and without the Stark name behind Jon uh, may indicate that it's still an option, but basically to save time and make things not as complicated as as physically possible just because the books are so complicated and, and intricate it seems like they may have just condensed these, these story lines down a little bit and eliminated some of the complexity to make it fit into this TV show plot line so it's entirely possible that the Grand Northern Conspiracy is still a thing in the books that the, the Northern Houses Glover, Manderley, etc. are angling to raise up Jon Stark to be their king in the north and um, it also gives me hope that things from the books aren't being spoiled as much as we may have thought they would be on the TV show. There's still a lot of room in the books for things to play out differently or end up the same, but have different ways of getting there. The, the path, the route, the journey being different entirely and interesting and more intricate. So it leaves me with a really good feeling about how, um, how the TV show is playing out with relative to the books, you know, because everything's fantastic at this point on the TV show. It's really, really good and well done, but it's different than the books. So I feel like um, we're not getting too spoiled. We might have major things spoiled, like major revelations, but all the, the little details I think are going to be different enough so that they'll still be very entertaining 
to experience in the book medium as well as the TV show, even though we've already experienced the uh, p- the end game is pe- uh, potentially on the show. So it's very very good news and um, not discouraging at all for book readers. Hopefully, it, it's not for me at least. I, it just leaves me um, looking forward to the the book releases even more to see how it ends up playing out. Another important thing to mention that's a book crossover is the arrival of the White Ravens from the Citadel. This is very important in the books. It takes place at the end of the last book, Dance with Dragons, and the Citadel has finally sent out White Ravens all across Westeros, indicating that winter has arrived. This is a huge, huge moment for everybody because, you know, the, one of the first things that we learn when we start reading a Game of Thrones, the first book, is that winter is coming. It's just pounded into our heads over and over. The stark words, winter is coming, winter is coming, winter is coming. The merchandising from the TV show, the, it's written everywhere. There's t-shirts, there's hats, you know, winter is coming. We've heard tales of the long night from Old Nan. We've seen the White Walkers from the first episode. We've seen them in flashbacks. There's been battles with them. Winter is coming. We've got Chekhov's spiders the size of hounds. White walkers riding on dead horses and devouring everything in their paths through the Seven Kingdoms. This has all been, you know, foreshadowed from the first season, and it's just the anticipation has been building and building. And the contact with whites and white walkers have has increased lately. You know, there's been more interaction with them. Finally, they've found Bran, whose arrival has been anticipated for a thousand years, and they're chasing him. And Bran has gotten to the Wall, which means the whites and the white walkers will be arriving at the Wall very soon. And um, that probably will not play out to the Seven Kingdoms' benefit. So winter has been coming. And now, winter is finally here. And since we're talking about winter and the North in general, let's talk a little bit more about our new White Wolf, King in the North. This was a big episode for Jon Snow, and uh, more than he knows, in fact... I mean, it was great enough to be Jon Snow this episode, having people rally around you and decry you, the new king in the north, even though you're a bastard, when you've lived your whole life um, feeling like an outcast because of your bastard status. And um, it's, it, I mean, it's great for him to finally be recognized for, for something other than being a bastard, to overcome this, the stigma that involves it. You know, bastards are born with bad blood. I mean, Ramsey Bolton is a great example of that um, not necessarily being evidence of its truth, but it goes to show you how just one bastard can ruin it for everybody else. But aside from the triumph of overcoming the limitations of his bastardhood, revelations took place outside of the scope of John's knowledge in this episode that will certainly have a, a huge effect on his future. After years of speculation, theorizing, and even mathematical equations, R plus L equals J, of course, it has been revealed that Jon Snow is in fact the son of Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen. I cannot overstate how exciting this is that this has finally been revealed. It's been speculated about consistently since 1996 when A Game of Thrones was first published by George R.R. R. Martin. And consistently it has been a fan favorite theory. Pretty much a lot of people up until this point um, have been taking this to be fact. They're just assuming that this is the case because there's so much evidence for it laid out all over the books, little hints everywhere. So let's take a look at the scene. 
It starts off with Bran and Mira being dropped off close to the wall by Benjen, his uncle. And there's a little nod to the book readers here because you can clearly see that Benjen's hands are blackened and look pretty pretty dead and frostbitten. And this is a nod to the whole cold hands uh, thing. It's been confirmed that in show canon, Benjen is cold hands, but in the books, it's pretty obvious that it's a different character. And um, he's, he's noted to have black frozen hands, which is why he goes by cold hands, or that's why Bran nicknames him cold hands. So it's cool to see Benjen's blackened hands this episode and um, get you know a little bit of a hint that this is, in fact, the cold hands that we were hoping to see at some point. So it's cool they kind of condensed those storylines, made them one, but we did end up getting cold hands, a lot of thing that a lot of people had speculated would not occur on the show. So he drops him off at the Weirwood Grove where John and Sam and all those guys took their Night's Watch vows, and Bran promptly goes back up to the tree, or goes up to the Weirwood and touches it to have another vision. So there he is, back at the Tower of Joy. Ned goes inside kicks in the door, basically, and walks into the room to see Lyanna lying on the bed, bleeding. He puts down his sword at the edge of the bed, and there's a cool shot where it's kind of looking down the bed from the foot up towards the headboard area, and you can see Lyanna lying down there, bleeding, and Ned places the sword down at the end of the bed, and for a split second, you can clearly see that it has a rising sun on its pummel, and, um, it's definitely dawn the uh, the potential sword of of ages which may have in fact been lightbringer wielded by azora high in the previous long night which i've talked about in previous uh, still smug sections so that was exciting to see that nice and close it's good to know that arthur dane was in fact wielding dawn during the last battle we saw at the at the tower of joy even though they've changed Dawn from being a two-handed greatsword down to a regular longsword, which is fine. It's just good to see Dawn there on screen. Pretty awesome. So he goes over to the bed, starts talking with Liana, and, um, you know, saying, get this, get my sister some water, and she's telling him, I don't want to die, but she knows she's going to. And they have this very interesting conversation where she says, listen to me, Ned. His name is, and the sound cuts out just for a split second there, so you can't see hear what she said. His name is, but she says, if Robert finds out, he'll kill him. You know he will. You have to protect him. Promise me, Ned. Promise me. This is a huge, huge book crossover. I'm literally getting goosebumps right now talking about it and thinking about it. <laughs> this is amazing to see because Liana is pretty much the central figure of the past 20 years of Westeros, the, the reason that Robert's rebellion occurred was because Lyanna was supposedly captured and raped by Rhaegar Targaryen after she was promised to be to be wed to Robert Baratheon. So whether or not that the, that's the case is, is dubious. I, I don't think it was the case. I think that she eloped with Rhaegar after um, they had been introduced and met at the, uh, the tourney of Harrenhal. Rhaegar, of course, crowned her the Queen of Love and Beauty, gave her the flower at the end of the tournament when he won it, and um, there's, it's likely that she was the, the Knight of the Laughing Tree, the mystery knight at the Attorney of Harrenhal, that defeated the, the uh, knights and the, of, who had, um, whose squires had been picking on the Cranach Man 
who is Howland Reed. So it's interesting that Howland Reed is also at this site, at the Tower of Joy, and that's pretty significant. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But So she tells Ned what his name is, and then immediately says that if Robert finds out, he'll kill him. So that leads me to believe that something to do with his name is significant and relates to why Robert would want this, this baby dead. And to me, that suggests that he is, in fact, a Targaryen, a legitimate Targaryen by birth. A bastard wouldn't necessarily be a threat to Robert, who's claimed the throne, but a, a legitimate, full-born Targaryen would be a threat to Robert Baratheon, Ned's best friend. So it's interesting. You see Ned react with a look of horror on his face as she says, listen to me, Ned, his name is... And it, the camera cuts to Bran, who's experiencing this as well while it's happening, and he has a look of amazement on his face as the revelation hits him that his his older brother, his big half-brother John, isn't actually his brother at all, but his cousin. And not only that, he's a Targaryen. I'm calling it. He's a Targaryen. He's legitimate. He was, he was born not into bastard status. So, let's see. Reasons to suspect that John is a Targaryen. We have Ned and Bran's reaction, which is astonishment. We have the fact that because of his name, Robert would want to kill him. And Ned knows that he will. We have the, the whole concept of the Kingsguard being at this tower to protect Lyanna? She's not a Targaryen. The, the purpose of the Kingsguard is to protect the royal family, right? So Rhaegar, in his life, had become obsessed with the prophecy of the prince that was promised. He was convinced for a while that it was he, or him, that he thought he was the prince that was promised, and eventually he decided that that was not the case, and that he became convinced that his son was the prince that was promised. So when Rhaegar was killed on the trident by Robert Baratheon and Ned was there, Ned actually referenced it when he saw Arthur Dane. He said, I looked for you on the trident. And Dane said, well, we weren't there. You know, we were here. He's, he tells him that, you know, Rhaegar is dead. But why would Rhaegar, why would Rhaegar give up his own Kingsguard protection? There's, there's various reasons, but understandably he wants to protect other members of the royal family but the Kingsguard weren't protecting Aegon and Rhaenys his daughters or his, his wife his known wife at the time Ilya Martell they were down at the Tower of Joy protecting Lyanna Stark and this baby that was about to be born so that leads me to believe that since he believed his child a son of his would be the prince that was promised that this is he believed that this this child to be born was going to be very significant not only that but i believe that if he since he knew that or he believed that his child would be the prince that was promised he wouldn't want him to be born as a bastard so i believe that Rhaegar had actually married liana at some point before this birth took place now a lot of people suggest that this is not likely because for generations targaryens had only wed one wife but if you remember, when Aegon Targaryen conquered the Seven Kingdoms, he did it with his two sister wives, Rhaenys and Visenya. So this brings us back to the question of what might John's name be? 
It's very interesting. Some people suggest that a that Rhaegar had been trying to recreate the three heads of the dragon, the original three heads of the dragon that conquered Westeros. He already had a son named Aegon after the Conqueror and a daughter named Rhaenys after one of his sister wives. So a third daughter may have been named Visenya. But John is a dude. You know, he's a guy, so that's unlikely. People have, you know, suggested that the um, the male version of Visenya would be apt for John, and that would be Viserys. But there already is a Viserys at this point, so I don't think that that Rhaegar's little little son would be named after his brother. Although it's possible, there's been instances where there's all kinds of Aegons running around, and you know, Targaryens are known for using the same name a lot. Aemon, the Dragon Knight, Aemon Targaryen, or Maester Aemon. Aemon pops up a lot. Aegon pops up a lot. There's all these names that repeat over and over and over. So I actually found a really good article online. It's at romper.com. And uh, let's see, it's titled, What is Jon Snow's Real Name on Game of Thrones? There are multiple possibilities. So it goes over what I just talked about, how he, how Rhaegar may have been, been trying to create, recreate the uh, three heads of the dragon, and it goes on to um, illuminate a couple other theories, which um, have been going around for a while, but they're articulated pretty well here. So we talked about how Rhaegar may have been trying to recreate the original three heads of the dragon, but there's a couple other theories that this article mentions as well. They've been going around forever online and um, in groups of people talking about this in the fandom, but uh, they're articulated pretty well here, so I'll read quickly from this article. Aemon has some narrative support to go off of, too. In A Storm of Swords, John mentions while playing as a child with Rob, he would pretend to be Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. In A Game of Thrones, there is the line, The gift of a sword, even a sword as fine as Longclaw, did not make him a Mormont, nor was he Aemon Targaryen. Which would be nicely ironic if it turns out that it is indeed John's birth name. John was also always very close to Aemon Targaryen of the Night's Watch, giving the name all kinds of importance in John's story. The next theory talks about the name Jaehaerys and um, compares John to Jaehaerys I, who is known as the Conciliator. It says Jaehaerys has less support, other than it sounding like an ostentatious Targ version of the name John. However, Jaehaerys the first bears a passing similarity to John as a character, according to Reddit user MultiAlley2. Jaehaerys had to fight to get the throne, like John will likely have to do, and he helped out the Night's Watch at one point. Though he was a fairly skilled warrior, King Jaehaerys sought peace above all else, and John has been shown to try to broker peace between peoples before. So, there are definitely some compelling arguments for various names, various Targaryen names that are out there. And so I'm, I'm assuming at this point that John is not his real name at all. It's an interesting choice by Ned and by George R. R. Martin, however, because Jon Snow sounds a lot like, you guessed it, John Doe, which this article also points out functions as a placeholder name until someone's real identity can be confirmed. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A lot of times when this is, um, when they find a body, and like an unidentified body and after a murder has taken place. So this is kind of hilarious and torturous at the same time for book readers, because as you remember, a few weeks ago when Bran first experienced the scene at the Tower of Joy and saw Ned and Howland kill Arthur Dane as well as um, Gerald Hightower, and he first saw this going down, we got pulled out of the scene when the three-eyed raven touched Bran's shoulder just before Ned entered the tower. And a million book readers who were watching this show at that point jumped up and screamed and wanted to smash their TVs because they so badly wanted to see what was happening inside that tower. They wanted confirmation that Jon was being born and that he's not Ned's son and that he's a Targaryen. So there was all this excitement about people, you know, before the episode aired, we heard that, oh, we're going to get the Tower of Joy scene this week. And I'm getting goosebumps again thinking about it because it's just such a major, major concept. And this this reveal will have such huge implications potentially for the future of this saga. So we get, we got word that, yes, we we're going to get the Tower of Joy this that week during the episode. And people were, I'm sure, just punching themselves in the teeth when we didn't get to see what was happening inside the tower. But there's another little moment like that that was frustrating for book readers tonight when we finally do see what's going on inside that tower and Ned leans over towards Liana and she says listen to me Ned his name is and the sound cuts out I turned it up so loud they completely removed all sound of what that name would have been she says listen to me Ned his name is Robert will kill him if he finds out you know he will so Everybody, like, is super excited that, yes, we finally get to see what's happening in the Tower of Joy, and then we can't even hear the name that she says to him. So there's, they want to keep that a secret for a big reveal coming up when it, when it turns out that, yes, he is a Targaryen. Rhaegar and Lyanna probably got married, and uh, maybe we'll see a flashback of that. It could have been at the uh, Isle of Faces, I believe, which was a... Um, a a famous Weirwood Grove in southern Westeros. Um, apparently, George R. R. Martin has said that it will come to the forefront of events in the future of the story. 
So people um, are predicting that that is the location where Rhaegar and Lyanna may have been married. And if that is true, John would be a true-born Targaryen. And think about the significance of that. At this point, Ares had been murdered. Or was about to be murdered. No, I think I think he had been murdered already, hadn't he? Rhaegar had been killed at the Trident. Ares had been murdered by Jaime Lannister. Robert sat the throne, and Ned traveled south to Dorne to the Tower of Joy to to finally recover Lyanna, his sister, his his beloved sister. And he gets there, and this child is born. And if it's the son, if it's a legitimate son of Rhaegar, okay, when when Ares was killed, the throne would have passed to Rhaegar, but Rhaegar was dead already at this point. So the throne would pass to to Rhaegar's firstborn son. Now his firstborn son is Aegon. Aegon's head is dashed against the wall by the mountain when the mountain rapes and murders Ilya Martell and kills Aegon and Rhaenys, the little babies. A tragic and horrible event that was likely ordered by Tywin Lannister. Actually, Tywin says that he instructed um, the mountain to kill Ilya, I, I believe, but didn't say anything about the kids, and the mountain just kind of did that on his own. Either way, it's terrible. But in this case, with no living male heirs, the throne would pass to Viserys. Now, we all know what happened with Viserys early in uh, in, the se- in season one and in A Game of Thrones. He got his, the golden crown, but not the one that he wanted. Khal Drogo melted a pot of gold and dumped it over his head. So, with, with Viserys dead, the throne would pass to Daenerys. Now, there's never been a queen before this episode. Now we have the Mad Queen Cersei, but previously there had been, never been a queen of Westeros. So that this is interesting. Daenerys is, you know, flying back to Westeros with her dragons claiming that she's the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. But if it turns out that Jon Snow is actually a true-born Targaryen, he would be the next eligible heir of Rhaegar to the Iron Throne. And this would cut in front of Viserys and Daenerys, who are brother and sister of Rhaegar, um, putting Jon in line to inherit the Iron Throne before either of those two. So if John is a legitimate Targaryen, he was born as the rightful king of Westeros. So this episode, when he's crowned or you know named the king in the north, it may be the second time that he was a legitimate king in his lifetime. He was born a king. That is craziness. And it is going to be amazing to see if that plays out. And how will this affect his relationship with Daenerys if they end up meeting up? I mean, it's, I think it's inevitable that they will. Because Jon will be the, the tip of the spear against the White Walkers in the north. And Daenerys will be coming over with her dragons, which will be an ideal White Walker and White weapon. You know, to, to eradicate these horrible undead creatures. If fire kills them, then dragon is one of the ultimate weapons at this point, for whites at least. So how will Daenerys and Jon interact? Bran is almost to the wall. He knows now that Jon is the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. He knows Jon's real name. We don't know it, but Bran knows it because he could hear it for sure when Lyanna whispered it to him. He could go back and view that a million times and get closer and closer until he heard it for sure. 
So Bran is, is outfitted with this knowledge at this point that even we aren't aware of, and John is, is certainly not aware of it. The tragedy here is just incredible that, you know, the last time that, that John saw Ned, Ned told him, the next time I see you, I'll tell you about your mother. I'll tell you that who you really are, what you really have, which is a, like a claim to the Iron Throne, essentially. So he's lived his whole life not knowing who he is, and not only that, but living with the stigma of being a bastard. And so it's just going to be crazy. I mean, Bran is almost to the wall with this knowledge. If he crosses the wall to head, to head south or to try to link up with his brother, who is last he knew was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, he could he could find John, tell him this. And I mean, what what reason is there to believe this kid when anybody when he's trying to tell information like this, revelations about ancient not ancient but you know distant past that could have a huge effect on the future? Why would anybody believe him? Well, Bran is in quite an interesting position here. People could simply ask him a question about their own past or about something that only they would know. And Bran could go back, get the answer, and tell them all to show them that, yes, he does have this capability to look into the past and find answers. For instance, so this is one way that this knowledge could become public. It's just simply by Bran proving that he has the ability to get information from the past, information that people shouldn't be able to attain and that only one or two people even know. But there's another way that this information could come out publicly, on the show at least. There's a couple ways in the books, which I've talked about previously on Still Smug, but there's another way in the books that this could come out and be recognized legitimately as fact, because there was one other person at the Tower of Joy who witnessed at least some of this who's alive today and probably has the accurate information. And that person is the father of Mira and Jojen Reed. Mira obviously is the, the, the lady, the, the girl who's currently with Bran and taking care of him since Hodor has, has uh, passed. But her father, Howland Reed, if you remember, was the guy that stabbed Arthur Dane through the back of the neck when he was going to kill Ned, saving Ned's life and opening up Arthur to uh, be killed by Ned. So, obviously, Ned goes into the tower, leaves um, Howland Reed out there to, you know, take care of his wound and bandage himself up, try to uh, prevent himself from bleeding out, and Ned comes out with a baby. He's going to have to give Howland Reed some type of explanation about this, and given that Howland knew that Lyanna was probably in that tower and that Lyanna had been with Rhaegar, it's likely that Ned told him exactly what happened. I mean, even if he didn't tell him, Howland Reed is gonna he's gonna figure it out. He probably Ned or Ned probably told him that, you know, John is a legitimate Targaryen and that we have to protect him. So from there they took Dawn, the uh, the sword of Arthur Dane, wielded only by the Sword of the Morning brought it back to Starfall, the uh, ancestral home of House Dane, and delivered it to the Dane family. But mentioning Arthur Dane and and Dawn in connection with the birth of Jon Snow is also an interesting little coincidence, because the Sword of the Morning, you know, is the person who is 
designated to be the bearer of Dawn, this ancient sword, which is said to have been um, forged from the heart of a fallen star. Now, if Dawn was Lightbringer, the fallen star may have been Nissa Nissa, the wife of Azora High, which means she could have been an ancient member of the House Dane, whose sigil is a, a falling star. So she could have been the the original falling star. I, we know that from the legend of Azora High, he tempered his blade, the blade of Lightbringer, by thrusting it through the heart of his wife Nissa Nissa. So this is in this way, Dawn could have been forged using the heart of a fallen star. So it's interesting that the last sword of the morning, who could basically be considered a place like a placeholder, someone to protect this blade and and keep the blade around and in this family and safe until the rebirth of Azora High. It's interesting that this this blade, Dawn, and the the wielder, the official sword of the morning, were present at the birth of Jon Snow. And that the sword of the morning died, the last sword of the morning died, as the, the new reincarnation of Azora High may have been born. So both the sword of the morning and the original Lightbringer, Dawn, potentially, were present when Jon Snow, or blank Targaryen, his real name, was born. So it's just a really interesting and fascinating connection um, if it turns out that Jon Snow is, in fact, Azor High reborn. And speaking of the Prince That Was Promised prophecy, um, you know, there's a series of conditions that supposedly the Prince That Was Promised would be born under, and uh, one of those conditions is born under a bleeding star. And so in that case, if, um, if, if Jon is the Prince That Was Promised, Arthur Dane could have been the bleeding star, as the Dane sigil is the falling star. So, all very fascinating, and all ties, all of these things tie together just brilliantly. George R. R. Martin is a master of setting this stuff up and hiding things in plain sight. So, all of this is happening, and Ned is finding out that his sister was pregnant, and that this is a Targaryen baby, who his best friend Robert would slaughter inevitably to 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 keep his his throne to prevent any resistance or any any potential problems with um, other people who would have a claim to the throne from existing so as liana tells ned this the look on his face is just heartbreaking he's realizing you know i'm going to have to betray my best friend robert and hide this from him because family is the most important thing you know and as honorable as a guy as Ned is, he he gives up his own honor at this point to protect his family and the son of his his beloved sister. So it's 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 just a brutal scene to see Ned deciding in this moment, you know, I'm going to pretend that he's my bastard. I'm going to live with a stain on my own honor, and people will believe that I laid with another woman other than my wife. My wife will be will have to believe it as well and you know he lived with this this these lies and the pain that resulted from it for for decades or maybe decades you know john's like what 16 when a game of thrones takes place ned dies shortly thereafter so he lives for a good 15 16 years with this blight on his honor 
all for the sake of protecting Jon Snow. And he probably doesn't even know the significance of Jon Snow. He doesn't know that he's Zora High, but he's doing this for his sister and doing it for, for Jon, the baby, because he's an innocent child and he doesn't deserve to be killed by a power-hungry, you know, king, even if it is Ned's best friend. And uh, you can see this mentality come out with Ned in season one of A Game of Thrones when he's telling Robert that Daenerys doesn't deserve to be murdered. You know, she's she's a girl, a Targaryen girl, young girl across the narrow sea. She's no threat to you. Ned is the only one that sticks up for Daenerys and tells Robert that it's not right for him to send assassins out to kill her. So this is a consistent character trait of Ned Stark, which um, we see at play here, just through the expression on his face as this is all going down. Ned is, is um, very much child-oriented through through the first book as um, as we get to know him interestingly enough um, every time he sees Cat he asks how are the kids you know his whole life revolves around around his children and keeping them safe and protecting them and everything so this is just um, an early example of the Ned that we will come to know and love so it's just fascinating to watch it and see the, the pain on Ned's face and realizing the gravity of the situation and everything that he's going to have to give up to protect his his nephew, this you know innocent child that would otherwise be brutally murdered. Sorry about that. It started to rain there as I was recording, and I could hear it through my heads headphones. So I decided to pause it quickly to go close the door and try to eliminate as much of that background noise as possible. But yeah, this is just a fascinating scene and really telling for Ned's character. I mean, he literally just fought a war to dethrone the Targaryens, the Targaryen Empire. And here he is, giving up his own honor and and just sacrificing so much to protect a Targaryen. Because now, a Targaryen is a blood relative of Ned's. Again, I cannot overstate the importance and significance of all of these uh, revelations that have occurred re regarding Jon Snow and the whole R plus L equals J secret Targaryen theories. It's just um, super, super exciting to see on screen and to, to get this information finally confirmed. <laughs> it's really, really awesome. So let's move on a little bit. Next, let's talk about the revelation of Littlefinger's goals. We found out this episode that Littlefinger has one goal, which is to sit the Iron Throne with Sansa Stark at his side. And for, for book readers, this is particularly compelling because George R. R. Martin has specifically stated that certain characters in this show, or in the, uh, in the series, you know, in the, uh, in the story, would never get point of view chapters in the books. And uh, for anybody that's listening who hasn't read the books, each chapter is written from a character's point of view. So one chapter you'll have Eddard, and it'll all be written from Eddard's point of view. Next chapter you'll have John, and it'll all be written from John. Then you have Cersei or Melisandre or anybody, name it. Um, so George R. R. Martin had stated that there would be a couple characters that would never get point of view chapters because it would be too revealing to the end game. And one of those characters is Littlefinger. Another would be Varys. They know too much, they have too much information, the endgame would be given away too quickly if these characters had point of view chapters. 
So a lot of people had really expected that we wouldn't know their motivations fully until pretty much the end of the story. So I was very surprised here to have Littlefinger just outright state what his motivation is. And I'm not sure it was a great idea on his part because the second that Sansa knew that what he wants involves her, that puts her in a position of power over Littlefinger, a real position of power. Now she can have him wrapped around her finger. And she immediately capitalized on that. You know, he went in for that kiss and she gave him the hand, held him off and said, oh, that's a pretty picture. But, you know, and now she's naming conditions. So this could have been a critical flaw in Littlefinger's plan to rise to the Iron Throne. It puts him in a position of weakness with having anybody know his goals. And as smart and cunning as Littlefinger is, I mean, he is, he's risen from a, a nobody, you know, son of a nobody, born on the, the smallest of the Finger Islands, and he has risen to tremendous heights for what he was started off with. I mean, he has, he's the Lord of Harrenhal. He's basically the acting Lord of the Airy. He was master of coin. He has risen really far from nothing, working side by side with kings, um, being in a huge position of power, it's it's pretty astounding. But as smart and cunning as he is, we know that in the past, emotion has been Littlefinger's downfall. He was always smart and clever as a child, but he fell for Cat when she was already betrothed to Brandon Stark. And what ended up happening? The Littlefinger's emotion got the better of him. He professed his love and challenged Brandon Stark, who is a skilled swordsman, to a duel to win the favor of Catelyn Stark. It's a terrible idea. Brandon's old, much bigger, much older, much more trained and skilled with blades, and he ended up cutting Littlefinger from neck to navel, which is um, you know, a famous scene from, from the TV show when he describes that, and it's mentioned in the books, and in the bad lip reading, they use that clip when he's talking about you know, using kitten meat <laughs> for his for his cheeseburgers and everything. Um, if you haven't seen bad lip reading of A Game of Thrones, go watch it right now. You're welcome. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, we know Littlefinger has the, um, the smarts to attain goals and to, to get things done and to place himself in positions of power and to strategize and, you know do things behind the scene and be super slick never let your, your opponents know what your motivation is you know he'll do things to throw people off just just being um, slick about stuff and clever he'll do stuff that he doesn't need to do just to to obscure his true intent you know he was kind of explaining that to Sansa after he saved her after uh, the battle of Blackwater and um, after Joffrey was killed sorry and um I'm just wondering, I mean, are his emotions getting the better of him here? You know, he he puts it out there and immediately has a small loss when Sansa doesn't immediately capitulate to his desires, essentially. So we're seeing that right off the bat, as soon as he 
you know, unveiled his true motivation. Things aren't going perfectly for him. You would have thought that after he lost his duel with Brandon Stark and was sent back to the fingers and, um, you know, taken out of the life of Catelyn for years and years and years, that that may have been a lesson to him. But emotions are really powerful things. Like, love is super powerful, you know. So no matter how much intellectual thought goes into something, uh, the emotion of being driven by love or by desire can can end up outweighing your intellectual um, thought processes and can be detrimental to your plans if they're heavily intellectually based. So I'm wondering if this could be the beginning of the downfall of Littlefinger. It could be, or it could be the beginning of a dangerous, dangerous duo forming. Um, we know that I just watched the pilot of the of Game of Thrones um, on Sunday again before the finale aired with my girlfriend's mom because she'd never seen it and I was like oh you gotta watch Game of Thrones so we're watching the pilot and one of the things that Sansa said in the pilot you know when um, she's talking with her mom her mom's braiding her hair Catelyn's braiding Sansa's hair and they're talking about how she's betrothed to Joffrey and how Ned or how um, King Robert had suggested that Joffrey marry Sansa and she's pleading with her mom to let her go to to King's Landing and let her be betrothed to Joffrey. And she talks about being queen and says, it's all she's ever wanted. You know, all I've ever wanted is to be queen, basically. And so that's basically what Littlefinger just said he wanted, too, was for her to be queen. So, again, it goes back to the battle of old Sansa and new Sansa and... Um, I'm worried that Sansa's old tendencies will end up prevailing and um, that she will end up being a strong character that she's developed into, but strong and not necessarily on the up and up. I was nervous after she declined to tell Jon Snow about the Knights of the Vale showing up. She sort of just let him ride off into battle knowing that they would show up eventually. To me... There's no reason that she shouldn't have told him exactly what was going on. You know, they could have still ridden up as bait, essentially, to draw Ramsay out, but knowing that they could retreat and have backup coming up. But Sansa neglected to tell John anything, and to me that means that, A, she was willing to write off Rickon immediately, understandably because Ramsay was going to kill him no matter what. But she decided to write off John as well and let him ride off into battle on a, on a suicide mission. There's no chance of, of John and company and the wildlings defeating Ramsay without more manpower. So she let him ride off on a suicide mission while knowing that there was backup troops on the way. And to me, this signifies that Sansa is all about herself. You know, she was not trying to save John in that moment. And um, I'm worried about the direction that this character is going to take. We saw as John was being named King in the North, uh, you know, in, in little eyeball interaction between Sansa and Littlefinger. And you know that if Littlefinger wants the Iron Throne, just the, the notion of a King in the North at all is contrary to the, uh, the notion of seven kingdoms ruled by one king on the Iron Throne. So Littlefinger is going to be a threat to John. 
and that's immediately apparent. And, I mean, Sansa has a choice here. She can back John as King of the North and probably get Winterfell for herself because John had already said, you know, you're the Lady of Winterfell, I'm a bastard. Okay, little Lady Lyanna Mormont and and um, Wyman Manderley and the Glover guy and the Kerwin guy and and um, Robar Royce and all these guys, they they deemed John worthy of being King in the North even though he's a bastard, but that doesn't say anything about Winterfell. He's, he doesn't, he's still not the Lord of Winterfell. Yeah, he may be the king in the north, but according to John and his discussion with Sansa, you know, Sansa is the Lady of Winterfell. So, uh, it's just going to be interesting to see which direction Sansa decides to go with this. Is she going to back John and forget her own ascent to queenship? Or is she going to forsake John the way she forsake forsake him at the Battle of uh, the Bastards and the way she forsaked Rickon and join up with Littlefinger um, as a power duo to essentially take over the Seven Kingdoms. I could see it playing out either way. Um, just based on Sansa's psychology, I mean, she she threw Arya under the bus in season one, um, you know, so that she could still remain betrothed to Joffrey, essentially, and betrayed her own her own blood for the goal of being queen so john isn't even her brother you know i mean he's she thinks that he's her half brother but how if she's willing to betray a, a full-blooded sister for the the hopes and dreams of being queen and allow you know the ramifications of that betrayal to take place which is the slaughter of innocent dire an innocent direwolf in either case, whether it was Nymeria or Lady, then uh, how far will she go to to attain her queenship? If if she sees Littlefinger as being a viable mode to rising to power, she could easily betray John, um, which would not be out of character, in my opinion, for for Sansa. You know, she's she was um, a self centered little girl who desired power when she was young. She's been traumatized and abused, and there's two ways it could go. She could learn from that and develop into a more well-rounded, adjusted character, or she could now just be a ruthless, self-absorbed self, um, character who's just still driving for power and is more wary and um, and cunning about getting it based on uh, you know the way that things have played out with her so hopefully it won't end up going that way but only time will tell it's pretty uh, pretty sad if, if Sansa ends up choosing power over family and would be the exact opposite of you know what her father Ned did when he decided to save John at the Tower of Joy ah <sighs> So let's move on to another little book crossover. So the Queen of Thorns ended up going down to Dorne to treat with the Sand Snakes and Alaria. And this is pretty interesting. I wasn't really expecting this to happen, but it makes sense that um, once you find out that Varys was there, um, obviously Varys is going to want to connect the power of High Garden with... Um, with Daenerys, it could, they'll be a f extremely valuable ally in the war to come. And since they're at odds with the Lannisters anyway, it makes perfect sense.
But the cool book crossover here is when Alentia, uh, Alentia, when Elena mentions something about the last time a Tyrell went to Dorne, uh, you know, you, you, Martells killed him. Something about a hundred scorpions, a hundred red scorpions. And uh, there's actually a, a great story that was told by, um, by Oberyn Martell in A Storm of Swords about this encounter, about this, uh, this murder in Dorne. So here is a little short reading from A Storm of Swords from Oberyn's perspective about this, this uh, murder. When the young dragon conquered Dorne so long ago, he left the Lord of High Garden to rule us after the submission of Sunspear. This Tyrell moved with his tail from keep to keep, chasing rebels and making certain that our knees stayed bent. He would arrive in force, take a castle for his own, stay a moon's turn, and ride on to the next castle. It was his custom to turn the lords out of their own chambers and take their beds for himself. One night he found himself beneath a heavy velvet canopy, a sash hung down near the pillows, should he wish to summon a wench. He had a taste for Dornish women, this Lord Tyrell, and who can blame him? So he pulled upon the sash, and when he did, the canopy above him split open, and a hundred red scorpions fell down upon his head. His death lit a fire that soon swept across Dorne, undoing all the young dragon's victories in a fortnight. The kneeling men stood up and were free again. So there's quite the storied history um, of interactions between the Dornish and the Seven Kingdoms, and various times when um, Targaryen kings had conquered Dorne, married Dornish women, gave birth to half-Dornish sons, which inevitably led to all kinds of, of uh, conflict, including the, uh, the Dance with Dragons, or sorry, not the Dance with Dragons, the, the Blackfire Rebellions, which are fascinating, and I highly recommend you researching. Uh, so this was a cool little nod to book readers to mention this, uh, this Lord Tyrell being murdered by a hundred red scorpions while his, he was staying in Dorne. So another book crossover that we get this episode is the arrival of Sam to Old Town and the Citadel. Now it plays out very differently than it does in the books. In the books he sits there for a while, doesn't realize he has to bribe the guy who's making the appointments, and eventually gets brought straight to Ma Mage Morrowind to um, discuss the information that he has from the wall and, and all that stuff. Pretty cool. But in this case, in the show, it's, it's, it's wild. He shows up and immediately is just given access to the library at the Citadel, which I found very bizarre. Like, oh, hey, we don't know who you are, but until we figure out what's going on, yeah, feel free to use the library. It's the biggest library in Westeros, full of just all kinds of ancient stuff that can't be found anywhere else. So it seems crazy just to let this random guy go through it who could uh, try to sabotage it or steal things or anything. But it's awesome for us and for Sam because Sam gets to be in his dream location. Essentially, there's no place in the world that Sam would rather be than the library at the Citadel because it's just so full of all this ancient books and these, this, this knowledge that you can't find anyplace else. And that's what Sam is all about. He's a knowledge sponge. He wants to learn and learn and learn and learn everything that he can. He reads, you know, he, he spends chapters in... Um, in the, the Song of Ice and Fire books, just down in the basement at Castle Black, just reading and reading and reading and learning anything he can about the White Walkers. Even on the show, Stannis finds him there for the first time when he meets him and, and, and tells him, keep reading, Samuel Tarly, you know, in a great moment. 
so it's it was just awesome to see this not not only just for Sam but for us to see the citadel in the and to see that the library just this massive massive library like unlike anything we've ever seen before just huge and I don't know if you guys noticed it but there are these series of rings hanging like sort of chandeliers up there and uh, it just so happens to be the exact ring that we see in the beginning of Game of, of the Game of Thrones show spinning around during the title sequence with all the different family logos and stuff on it so it was great to see Sam get to the Citadel and I cannot wait to see what he ends up finding there I mean he could be there to learn how to make Valyrian steel as well as all of his other, you know, traditional maester duties. And um, if he does, for instance, he could he could be the guy to outfit the Night's Watch with Valyrian steel swords to take down the White Walkers. The uh, implications of an intelligent person like Sam being in a location like this are fascinating. So it'll be awesome to see how this plays out. And that brings us to the biggest book crossover we have for this episode, which all stems from the stashes of wildfire, the caches that Mad King Ares left all around the city. And holy flying fuck. This was crazy. Let me just say, the music in this whole first scene of this episode, when we just starts and they just hear a bell tolling dong dong and it's silence as it shows you know Cersei getting dressed and Marjorie getting prepared and Tommen you know putting on his clothes and his necklace and his you know fantastically intricate jewelry and and um, just this, this whole setup and and the sound that Ramin Javadi created to orchestrate this uh, and to get the emotion across was just masterfully done and the tension was just unbelievable um, this this first scene with the bell tolling it was more suspenseful than anything I've seen on Game of Thrones before and I was just awestruck just eyes glued to the TV waiting to see what was going to happen and as the story progresses and it there's it begins with a melody on a piano and it as things get more intense it it turns into multiple violins and strings playing this arpeggiating riff and it gets more and more intense and um, I just want to give mad props to Ramin Javadi for creating this amazing score and um, just just fascinating and excellently done so there are a lot of occurrences that take place during this whole wildfire explosion madhouse so <laughs> murder slaughter fest that are um, things that happen in the books but that play out slightly differently. For example, we have the death of Kevin Lannister. And Kevin Lannister makes it all the way to the last chapter. I'm pretty sure the uh, the pro the um not prologue, but the epilogue of A Dance with Dragons, where um, he basically is doing his thing, whatever, and his, a servant comes up and tells him that Grand Maester Pycelle is seeking him. And so he goes to Pycelle's chamber and finds that a white raven has arrived, announcing Winter's arrival. You know, another thing we ended up actually seeing in this episode was white ravens are being sent by the Citadel and Winter is here. 
So he sees the White Raven, figures out that winter is, is here officially, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, varies steps out of the darkness, essentially, and shoots Kevin Lannister in the chest with a crossbow. Kevin, wounded and in pain, looks around the room and realizes that Pycelle is there, but he's already dead and has been slain. Varys then speaks to Kevin in um, sort of like the way that um, Kyburn spoke to Pycelle in this episode. It's, it's interesting, the death of Pycelle sort of played out more similarly to the death of Kevin Lannister from the books. So it's like Pycelle sort of took Kevin's place. But Kevin comes up, or Varys comes up to Kevin and basically explains to Kevin that, you know, he bears him no no malice, but he can't allow Kevin to undo Cersei's misrule. Kevin has taken the place of regent over Tommen, and he's working to try to undo all the bad shit that Cersei's done, like letting the um, the sparrows rise to power and just all the terrible decisions that Cersei makes because she's just terrible. Um, so, in, in order for Varys's plan to work, which would be to, you know, to have Prince Aegon, the, uh, the supposed prince, many people think that he's fake Aegon and maybe a Blackfire, um, he wants him to come and take the throne, but he can't allow stability to take place in Westeros before that happens because he needs it to be in chaos so that when Aegon Targaryen or whatever, whoever he really is, maybe a Blackfire shows up, it needs to be, um, the, the Seven Kingdoms need to be susceptible to change and um, open to having a strong outside force influence the situation and... Um, you know, basically take over the throne. So he says, you know, he bears him no ill will, but he can't allow Cersei's progress or chaos progress to be undone by honest, like, good rule, which Kevin was doing. So he basically shoots him in the chest and then brings in his little birds to finish Kevin off. And uh, it's it's pretty hardcore. Um, it's insane seeing all those little birds come up to Pycelle this episode and just ruthlessly take him down and just stab after stab after stab. And it is nuts. So in the books, Varys basically says um, that Cersei will think Kevin was murdered by Tyrion or House Tyrell. In the Tyrells, in turn, will suspect Cersei herself murdered Kevin, undermining the the alliances that are shoring up Tommen's hold on the Iron Throne. So, um, it's basically Varys taking, you know, taking the situation and preserving chaos in King's Landing to make it ripe for picking when Prince Aegon comes to take the throne. So circumstances are very different on the show but we do have these characters dying who died in the books Pycelle is dead Kevin Lannister's dead their deaths have been changed a little bit but sort of mingled also so they resemble each other's deaths on in the books just you know fun for book readers to make these connections and to see how things play out a little bit differently and um, another one another one of these little connections is the removal once and for all, of Loris from the picture. Now, everybody knows that he was severely wounded 
when taking back Storm's end had hot oil poured on him and he's been out of commission and assumed to be basically uh, knocking on death's door for quite some time now by the end of the uh, the books where we are now Cersei goes to see Marjorie and is acting all sad saying oh I'm so sorry about Loras and Marjorie snaps on her and freaks out and says get out of here you crazy bitch and you know she's still trying to do anything she can to um, to help Loras pull through but things aren't looking good for Loras in the books so here we have Loras being removed from the situation entirely which could signify that in the books um, you know his story doesn't have much further to go anyway and um, one of the shocking things here for book readers I imagine was the death of Marjorie and this this kind of plays into the whole Varys and Kevin thing also because if Marjorie was allowed to rise to power I think she's smart enough and and has you know the the right intent to the point where she would sort of be doing what Kevin Lannister had been doing in the books which is to sort of stabilize things and remove the negative influence that Cersei had imposed on the city so having um, Cersei end up remaining in power and having Marjorie removed on the show essentially does what Varys had done by taking out Kevin which is prolonging the situation of chaos and misrule in King's Landing which leaves the door wide open for Daenerys to come in um, eventually when she gets to the Seven Kingdoms which who knows it could be episode one episode two of next season she's probably going to have to deal with Euron Greyjoy on the water and there'll be a sea battle I assume but inevitably it'll just end with her having a whole bunch more ships to come and fight against Westeros and uh, take the kingdoms back so Marjorie is removed from the situation all hope of just rule and sane rule dying with her in just a brutal brutal way it's really hard to watch Marjorie go out the way that she did in this episode um, especially once she figured out what was going on I was just sitting there thinking oh my god I hope she can get out of here please get out get out get out get out and um, sad to say she did not make it um, big blow to the the the, um, the light side of the equation for for King's Landing and um, darkness in the form of Cersei's black leather dress with the armored shoulder pieces has um, taken hold of the Iron Throne bad bad juju <laughs> oh my god I mean Cersei is not this she's not a smart or strategic person person she's paranoid she's emotional she thinks she's the reincarnation of Tywin Lannister but she's nowhere near his level she's much she she thinks she's much smarter than she is and she's not smart enough to know that she's not that smart so this is actually quite a success for her in in the TV show in one fell swoop she's eliminated the high sparrow eliminated a lot of the sparrows and the um the um what whatever their their army is called the faith militant sorry i forgot for a second there 
She's eliminated the faith militant. She's eliminated the Martell or the uh, Tyrell threat. She's eliminated, you know, Mace Tyrell, who's uh, still alive in the books. So that's crazy. She's eliminated Marjorie. She's eliminated Loris. High Garden has lost its heirs at this point, and there's nobody except Olena to command any remaining forces um, against Cersei. So she's basically wiped out the biggest rival family that she has in the Seven Kingdoms right now. I mean, High Garden is the second richest family. They've they're at this point probably richer than the Lannisters, at least on the show, because you know um, Tywin had said that the gold mines are running dry. That and the uh, High Garden is known to have like the biggest food supply. It's basically you know like a a rich area for growing food, and they've been bussing, bussing, bringing in tons and tons of food to King's Landing to um to shore up the supplies because you know after the Blackwater and everything like that, the city was struggling. There's you know food prices had skyrocketed. There's just not a lot of food available. So when Marjorie came and wed Joffrey. The, the small folk really loved Marjorie and loved the Mar- the uh, Tyrells because with them came supplies and came lots of food and plenty and uh, scarcity of resources sort of disappeared at least for a while when uh, with the influence of the Tyrells on on the, um, the, the um, King's Landing. So without the Tyrell support moving into the future, I can see chaos easily descending into King's Landing and having Cersei just seem like a miserable dictator, unloved by the people and um, feared very much so by the populace that she's ruling over. So I don't see this being a winning combination for Cersei in the long run. Plus, now that we have Varys putting together the forces, we've got Daenerys, Tyrion, the the Iron Fleet, the Martell Fleet, the, the the power of High Garden, all combining together to just come in and crush Cersei. But it's not going to be that simple because we do have still hidden all throughout King's Landing through the major thoroughways under the Red Keep, everywhere these stashes of wildfire left by King Aerys. So, if somebody is going to try to take down Cersei, they need to be very, very stealth about it. Because all she has to do, potentially, is say the words. And these little birds can blow up lots of other spots in this city. So, I mean, I'm even worried for Daenerys showing up. Who knows? She could land a dragon, and the whole area could blow up, and she could be wiped out with one or more of her dragons. I really, really hope that doesn't happen because it would just be like incredibly, like an incredible shame to go through all this with Daenerys, finally get her over to King's Landing, and then have stashes of wildfire that were left by her mad father be the end of her. And the mad king ends up wiping out his own blood descendants, except for Jon. Um, but imagine how ironic that would be, right? Everything that the mad king did to prevent somebody else from taking over King's Landing ends up actually um, preventing his own family from regaining King's Landing. So we get the death of Tommen also in this episode, which um, 
is interesting because if you remember in the, the pilot episode, Cersei was a part to a, a t- an attempted murder that occurred by pushing a little boy out of a window. Obviously, Bran Stark, but here she is now a part to a suicide that involves a little boy jumping out a window. Coincidentally, Tommen and Bran and Windows and Cersei. Horrible, horrible thing to experience. But before Tommen was dead, Cersei was already dressed in black. She didn't go to see Tommen on that day. She had the mountain stop him so he could watch the sept be destroyed and witness it all almost as a punishment it seemed for betraying her and then she neglects him I mean she knows him pretty well I would assume that she knows how deeply he loved Marjorie and how committed he was to the the High Sparrow's dogmatic view of things at this point so was this intentional on Cersei's part did she did she predict or foresee that Tommen would try to kill himself and just simply allow it to happen? Or was she just so obsessed with revenge and vengeance that she ended up focusing on Septa Unella and her torture and just leaving Tommen neglected to uh, kill herself? It's interesting the parallel that can be drawn between Cersei and Tywin here, ironically. Um, they both claim to love their family more than anything to be focused on family you know Tywin did everything for his family and family 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 but he didn't know what was going on in his family he treated his family like garbage forced Cersei to marry Robert you know always treated Tyrion terribly didn't even know that Cersei and Jaime were having an affair which is like completely obvious <laughs> especially it should be for someone that close to them but Here's Cersei, you know, claiming through every season that she loves her kids more than anything. And here she is neglecting her last remaining kid so that she can go torture a Septa, essentially. But this could also be, um, you know, she could have seen the conclusion as foredrawn or, you know, foreseen that um, Tommen would die and all her kids would die. And so maybe when Tommen ended up betraying her, and essentially removing her outlet of escaping the High Sparrow's judgment, namely the trial by combat, it's entirely possible that that betrayal of her was enough to, um, you know, not necessarily murder Tommen herself, but not prevent him from dying, not saving him when the time came and when the time came Cersei was nowhere to be found she was already dressed in black it seemed like she already had a plan when Tommen was killed you know she says she just she just scorched a good portion portion of King's Landing and a lot of innocent people and enemies burned enemies with fire right and so her son dies and what does she tell Kyburn to do burn him with fire just like she did to her enemies. Does that signify that at that point she considered Tommen an enemy? Had she lost motherly feelings toward Tommen at that point? I don't know. Um, I'd love to know what what you guys think if you're listening to this. Um, write in and tell us, you know, did, did Cersei end up turning on Tommen entirely or did she just neglect him? 
either way, it's a horrible tragedy. I, I mean, I can, the second that Tommen took off his crown, walked off screen, and the camera lingered on that window, I knew that he was going out that window, and um, I did not see that coming. I had predicted, you know, various other ways that Tommen would be killed, whether by the mountain or whether by sparrows or, you know, there's a variety of ways that it, he could have ended up dying, which could have driven Cersei to madness and caused her to set off these wildfire explosions. But apparently she, you know, she was in a position to uh, strike against the enemy, eliminate them once and for all, and she took it. And, um, you know, Tommen's love was there. He watched it explode. He knew that Marjorie was dead. He knew that all these people that he had sided with were dead. And I guess he just decided that he should go out with them. And, um, you know, what's the point in, in uh, living after... I mean, I, I, there's, uh, of course, a million reasons to keep going and try to influence the future in a good way. But to a kid like that, you know, the love of his life died there. And um, if he believes in the gods and in afterlife, why wouldn't he want to join her? So... A terrible tragedy and this you know plays into the the fulfillment of the prophecy by the the woods witch Maggie the frog which had been discussed at the beginning of season five when we saw the flashbacks of of uh, Cersei going to meet with this woods witch so this raises the question you know was this a self-fulfilling prophecy or was this inevitable. Cersei is so obsessed with revenge and leaves Tommen to kill himself. She arguably is the reason that Tommen is dead at this point. So she has fulfilled at least part of this prophecy herself, it seems. Interestingly, this is um, setting up all kinds of conflict with her brother, brother lover, um, that we will see play out inevitably, I imagine. So, Jamie pulls up to the city on their horses with the uh, with Bronn and just looks devastated that, you know, this explosion has taken place. The sept of Baylor is just gone. That by itself is awful because just what a magnificent architectural accomplishment this building was is just incredible, and to see anything with um whether or not you agree with the purpose of its creation or the people that are inhabiting it now, what seeing something beautiful and historical destroyed like this is just an awful thing to behold. So there's that. There's the fact that, you know, Cersei just partially accomplished the goal of the Mad King, which Jamie sacrificed his whole life and reputation to prevent in the first place. Like he is the Kingslayer because he gave up his honor or you know like he it was honorable to save all those people but he gave up the, the public perception of honor to kill the king to prevent this exact thing from happening so this could be a huge rift that's just been created between Jamie and Cersei and interestingly with the prophecy on the TV show they left out one major detail which is the prophecy, the part of the prophecy that talks about the Valonqar, 
or Valerian for the little brother. The woods witch Maggie the Frog tells Cersei that after her children are dead and after everything is going on, she will meet the Valonqar. Maggie the Frog tells Cersei, and when your tears have drowned you, the Valonqar shall wrap his hands around your pale white throat and choke the life from you. This final part of the prophecy was left out by the um, this, the showrunners in the show, and this may be just to you know it's it was a pretty obvious that all of her kids were going to die and that all this prophecy stuff was coming through. Maybe they just wanted to keep this last part of the prophecy secret and hidden so that it would be more of a surprise when the Valonqar does kill Cersei. Now, Valonqar is Valyrian for little brother. And there's all kinds of speculation about who this could be in the books. It could be Tyrion, who Cersei believes is the Valonqar in the books. It could have been Tommen, who was the little brother of her own kids, and it almost was Tommen. If um, if that trial had gone through and Tommen had removed the right to trial by combat, he w- would have essentially killed his mom, and so the Valonqar would have succeeded in murdering Cersei. Not literally wrapping his hands around her pale white throat and choking life from her, but metaphorically, you know, killing her and... Um, so it could be, it could have been Tommen, it could have been Tyrion. Let's see, who else are there? There's there's Sandor Clegane, who's a younger brother. There's Jon Snow, who's a younger brother, theoretically, um, although he's not actually Rob's brother. There's, there's all these candidates for younger brothers. And one that's not really sig- talked about on the uh, in the books at all is Cersei's immediate younger brother, who is Jaime. And uh, Jamie was born, what, a minute after Cersei? She was just the first one to come out of the womb, uh, and they're twins. So it would be poetic, very poetic, for Jamie to end up being the Valonqar, someone who has been so deeply in love with Cersei for their whole lives. You know, they're, they're, Jamie has said, you know, we're born together. We'll die. We'll we enter this world together. We'll leave the world together. He's it's given him confidence in battles and when he's been a prisoner before. Like, nope, I'm not going to die because Cersei's not here. We were we entered the world together. We're going to leave the world together. He's been convinced of this for a long time. Um, so someone who's so deeply loved Cersei and who has now been so deeply and ultimately betrayed by the same person who's loved. It wouldn't be the first time where, you know, a, a spouse has been murdered by someone who just loves them so much and has been so angered by something, some kind of betrayal that they've done to them. So psychologically, it makes a lot of sense here that Jamie could end up being the Valonqar and could end up killing Cersei. I mean, she's basically responsible for the death of their last child and she did nothing to prevent it and did everything to cause it so just that alone could be enough to to tick off Jamie and you know switch him against her but the fact that she murdered all these countless innocent people yeah there were a lot of bad guys in the sept too the sparrow and arguably a lot of other people but the fact that 
she indiscriminately murdered all these people, which is exactly what Jamie had, you know, given up so much to prevent from happening on top of the fact that their child and is dead and now there's no he doesn't have any any heirs left or any any children left this could be enough to to send Jamie over the deep end and there's there's also other foreshadowing to this in the books like for instance when when Tyrion kills Shay and uses the necklace of golden hands to strangle her. What is the Valonqar supposed to do? Wrap his hands around Cersei's pale white throat. And what does Tyrion do? He wrapped his hands, his golden hands, around Shay's throat. But Jaime also has a golden hand. You know? So, the fact that the golden hands were used to strangle somebody may have been foreshadowing Jamie's golden hand strangling Cersei in the end. For hands of gold are always cold, but women's hands are warm. So, Jamie arrives into the the um, the, the the throne room while Cersei is being crowned queen of the Seven Kingdoms, queen of the Andals and the First Men. And there's this look that passes between them. And Cersei is just looking like a maniac sitting on the throne there. Her eyes in that ending shot, as it pans out, she just looks terrifying. Just ice cold, ruthless. She glances over at Jamie. Jamie's kind of looking at her like, what the fuck? What is going on here? Who is this person? And she, you know, they make eye contact for a second and she just boom, right back forward, looks at the crowd. And um, it's interesting. I mean, we've got Lannister army, essentially. Lannister guards lined up in this whole throne room. This could easily be seen as a coup, a, a political coup. For for the known past, the kingship is, is passed down through male hands. And um, Cersei is the queen mother the um at this point um she's so she would be a member of the royal family but since there are no baratheons left who would the throne pass to in this circumstance would it be the next surviving male relative of the king that would be jamie so the fact that cersei has all these lannister guards lined up and has sort of taken the throne for herself here could be a political coup when uh, it could have otherwise passed to Jamie, although I'm not sure about that. This would be also um, a great topic to get your opinion on, um, all you listeners. Who would have followed Tommen um, in the succession of the throne after this? But this look, you know, after Jamie sees the um, the tower or the um, the sept burned and just sees Cersei taking power and sees her her black outfit and these armored shoulder pads and just the look of pure just just ice that she's giving this whole crowd and everybody just bowing down to her in fear because they know she just wiped out all the competition murdered the high sparrow the, the tyrells and took out one of the biggest landmarks in the city people are terrified of cersei right now for sure so this this look that Jamie gives her kind of reminds me 
of a passage from the books, which is very significant here also, because in the books, Cersei decides to burn the Tower of the Hand to the ground because she believes that Tyrion is lurking inside the walls, creeping around and just waiting for a moment to strike. So she burns the Tower of the Hand to the ground with wildfire and is just like ecstatic watching this watching the fire and watching the flames licking through the doors and the windows and Jamie is thinking like oh my god she's she's like the mad king and this is it sort of solidifies the divide that's been forming between Jamie and Cersei in the books and i think that this is a turning point for their relationship in these in the the show as well and that this may cause irreconcilable differences between Jamie and Cersei. But to follow up with this um, this this encounter of Jamie and Cersei on the show and the potential conflict that will be resulting from this, I would like to read a passage from A Feast for Crows. And this is the passage where Cersei burns the Tower of the Hand. I think her grace has had enough wine for one night, she heard her brother Jamie say. No, the queen thought, all the wine in the world would not be enough to see me through this wedding. She rose so fast she almost fell. Jamie caught her by the arm and steadied her. She wrenched free and clapped her hands together. The music died, and the voices stilled. Lords and ladies, Cersei called out loudly, if you will be so good as to come outside with me, we shall light a candle to celebrate the union of High Garden and Casterly Rock, and a new age of peace and plenty for our seven kingdoms. Dark and forlorn stood the Tower of the Hand, with only gaping holes where oaken doors and shuttered windows had once been. Yet, even ruined and slighted, it loomed above the outer ward. As the wedding guests filed out of the small hall, they passed beneath its shadow, when Cersei looked up, she saw the tower's crenellated battlements gnawing at a hunter's moon, and wondered for a moment how many hands of how many kings had made their home there over the past three centuries. A hundred yards from the tower, she took a breath to stop her head from spinning. Lord Helene, you may commence. Helene, the pyromancer, said, Hmm, and waved the torch she was holding and the archers on the walls bent their bows and sent a dozen flaming arrows through the gaping windows. The tower went up with a whoosh. In half a heartbeat, its interior was alive with light, red, yellow, orange, and green. An ominous, dark green, the color of bile and jade and pyromancer's piss. The substance, the alchemists named it, but common folk called it wildfire. Fifty pots had been placed inside the Tower of the Hand, along with logs and casks of pitch, and the greater part of the worldly possessions of a dwarf named Tyrion Lannister. The queen could feel the heat of those green flames. The pyromancers said that only three things burned hotter than their substance. Dragon flame, the fires beneath the earth, and the summer sun. Some of the ladies gasped when the flames appeared in the windows, licking up the outer walls like long green tongues. Others cheered and made toasts. It is beautiful, she thought, as beautiful as Joffrey when they laid him in my arms. 
No man had ever made her feel as good as she had felt when he took her nipple in his mouth to nurse. Tommen stared wide-eyed at the fires, as fascinated as he was frightened, until Marjorie whispered something in his ear that made him laugh. Some of the knights began to make wagers on how long it would be before the tower collapsed. Lord Helene stood humming to himself and rocking on his heels. Cersei thought of all the king's hands that she had known through the years. Owen Merriweather, John Connington, Carlton Chelstead, John Arryn, Eddard Stark, her brother Tyrion, and her father, Lord Tywin Lannister. Her father most of all. All of them are burning now, she told herself, savoring the thought. They are dead and burning, every one, with all their plots and schemes and betrayals. It is my day now. It is my castle and my kingdom. The Tower of the Hand gave out a sudden groan, so loud that all the conversation stopped abruptly. Stone cracked and split, and part of the upper battlements fell away and landed with a crash that shook the hill, sending up a cloud of dust and smoke. As fresh air rushed in through the broken masonry, the fire surged upward. Green flames leapt into the sky and whirled around each other. Tommen shied away, till Marjorie took his hand and said, Look, the flames are dancing, just as we did, my love. They are. His voice was filled with wonder. Mother, look, they're dancing. I see them. Lord Helene, how long will the fires burn? All night, your grace. It makes a pretty candle, I grant you, said Lady Olena Tyrell, leaning on her cane between left and right. Bright enough to see us safe to sleep, I think. Old bones grow weary, and these young ones have had enough excitement for one night. It is time the king and queen were put to bed. Yes, Cersei beckoned to Jamie. Lord Commander, escort his grace and his little queen to their pillows, if you would. As you command. And you as well? No need. Cersei felt too alive for sleep. The wildfire was cleansing her, burning away all her rage and fear, filling her with resolve. The flames are so pretty. I want to watch them for a while. Jamie hesitated. You should not stay alone. I will not be alone. Sir Osmond can remain with me and keep me safe, your sworn brother. If it please your grace, said Kettleblack, it does. Cersei slid her arm through his, and side by side they watched the fire rage. And there you have it, the ominous burning of the Tower of the Hand by Cersei in Feast for Crows. And um, this scene, I think, foreshadows a lot of similar events taking place in the future with, with um, Cersei revolving around wildfire. And uh, I think this this first incident in the TV show where Cersei blew up the Sept may just be one of many to come. As we know, the Mad King has wildfire stashed in plenty of other places around the uh, around King's Landing, including the Red Keep. So we can anticipate much more devastation to come and much more chaos that is pretty much inevitable. Anyway. I think that this was a fantastic and astounding Game of Thrones finale. 
I can't even say how excited I am to have been able to experience it with you guys and to hear all of your feedback. And um, it's just a, a great time to be watching TV. For book readers also, it's just so exciting to be experiencing all of this huge action without having the any precedence from the books. You know, it's it's crazy to see the end game coming together and so many characters being eliminated and the story tightening up. We're really starting to see where things are going. You know, there's going to be a conflict in King's Landing with Daenerys and and House Tyrell and Martell and um, Greyjoy all teamed up against the, the Lannister army, essentially. It's just Cersei, maybe Jaime, and their army. And, um, you know, they're free of alliances at this point um, for the most part. It's, you know, there's so much crazy stuff going on here, and it's all going to end up with a, with a battle for life, um, life against death. I wonder who will be on the side of life when it comes down to it. Who will survive King's Landing? Who will survive the conflict when it comes out that John is a Targaryen? Will he ally with Danny? Will they marry and co-rule? Will they be enemies and kill each other to take the Iron Throne? I mean, John is the rightful, probably the rightful uh, heir to the throne, but Danny's been angling at the Iron Throne for years now. So, I mean, there is, is a conflict of interest if it turns out that John is a rightful Targaryen. We'll have to see how it plays out. But the future is full of fascinating possibilities, and I will be looking forward to experiencing them with all of you guys. Um, in the meantime, if you haven't read the books, do it, man. Get in there, read all five of them, and um, hopefully you'll get them all done before The Winds of Winter is released. I highly recommend the audiobooks as well. Um, Roy Dotrice does an amazing job of narrating and has a different voice for every character, and it's just, um, it's just superbly, superbly orchestrated. So, without any further ado, this is the conclusion of Season 6 and the conclusion of your Still Smug Book Talk sections for this year's Game of Microphones podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed the ride as much as I have. This is your host, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, Lord of Castle Sterling, Leal Sword of the White Wolf, and Bearer of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Dark Warrior, signing out. Until next time, Valar Morghulis. All right, that's it. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I really feel like Duncan should add Maester into his title in there somewhere. Anyway, we will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 1. So come back and join us then. Uh, also, I just wanted to mention, don't forget to go do that survey if you didn't already. It's at survey.libson.com slash Game of Microphones. And you can also find that URL in the show notes. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line. 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.